0: The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Labrie Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Labrie Fellowship.
1: Why don't we get started? Hello to everybody in the room. Those of you who are joining from far away, there's actually people in this room, uh, and it's really, really nice. To, yeah. Some people actually showed up. Um, it's really nice to have to have uh, people in the house. It's the third week uh, since all the COVID uh, business that we've actually been able to have outsiders come into the house, other than the students who are living with us. So it's really a, a pleasure, and also a pleasure to have so many people joining from from outside too. Welcome to you as well. Um, This is the third or fourth lecture in our series this summer. Uh, Next week, if you're interested, uh, Dick Kyes will be speaking, uh, this is on the 11th of June, on the topic, Jesus, the stone, the builders rejected. Um, And for tonight, um, we have Dr. Brandon Unruh, who is uh, a psychiatrist at McLean Hospital, and medical director of the Gunderson Residence. His his uh, specialty is in borderline personality disorder. Um, he's done a lot of work um, in that, and as well is just a very thoughtful Christian man who we have, Michaela and I have the privilege of knowing from church, so he's a good friend, and has lectured for us once before, I think once, twice, once before, and promises to, to keep coming back. So...
2: Um,
1: <laughs> We hope, that, we hope that happens. If you are, are joining us remotely and you have a question during the, the question and answer time, the best thing to do is raise your hand virtually, that little yellow hand that comes up in the air, and then Brandon can see that you have a question, and then we'll unmute you, and then you can ask your question. Um, and those of you who are in the room, raise your, your real hand if you want to ask a question. But without further ado, Brandon Unruh... <laughs>
3: Hi, everyone. Good evening. Hi. Am I okay? Can you hear me all right? Those on Zoom, hopefully? All right. Uh, it's really nice to be back, and it's strange to hear someone say that it's summer. So the passage of time has warped over the past year and a half. Um, so, so Ben introduced me as uh, a psychiatrist. And so I have to wear a coat while I give this talk. Uh, coats are welcome here, I think, though, at LaBrie, right? I think that, anything goes. Any, anything allowed. goes. They're allowed. They're allowed. They're allowed. So, but when people who don't know me learn that I'm a psychiatrist, some become curiously uncomfortable when I'm in the room. So I thought I would open with a corny joke for you, just, just to put everybody at ease. Uh, this, If you heard me last time, this is a new one. For this this audience. What do you call a medical student who earns C's all the way through medical school? Hopefully not your psychiatrist. (laughs) There's probably other potential answers to that question that would be... So I just want to be a banjo player, I heard. Worship leader? No. I'd like to begin by just clarifying the the ordering of my identity as I see it. Um, So first, I'm I'm rescued by Lord Jesus. Second, I'm married to a saint who is a co-author and co-writer on everything that I do that's worthwhile, including this talk. And third, I'm father to the three children that she is watching at the moment at home right now. Fourth, or somewhere after fourth place, because there are, of course, there are other roles like son and nephew and grandson and so forth. But somewhere after fourth place comes psychiatrist and psychotherapist. And some people do wonder, in more conservative Christian circles at least, how can I be both a psychiatrist and a Christian? Psychiatrists are known as the secular priests, aren't they? And this is where Ben's account of the Doctrine of the Fall from last week, which I listened to to do my homework, is ripe context for this lecture. So those of you who've arrived just yesterday or today, got some catching up to do. On a biblical account of creation and fallen human nature, we have room to understand why we have mental health problems not just anxiety and fear, which I'm going to focus on tonight, but depression, suicidality, self-harm, narcissism, and so forth. The Bible teaches very clearly, as Ben summarized so, so well last week, that all creation, including our very own minds, is fallen. Our own minds are fallen and fallible and constantly falling, it seems. So I would just add to the long list of elements of reality that Ben listed last week that the mind, too, perhaps even more poignantly than other aspects of creation, the mind, too, bears the marks of fallenness insofar as it is so prone to decay and disorder, misapprehension of ultimate reality. Isaiah 55 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God's God's mind scales the heights, and our minds are fallen. So because our mind is a bent apparatus, as we look along our own mind to draw further conclusions about the world, we're going to get things further wrong. Our experiences of ourselves, of others, and of course of God all processed through the mind, remain fractured, fragmented, and finite nearly all of the time. The Bible, of course, says that we see through a glass darkly, but often it seems more like we're just trapped inside a black box. Feelings, we all know, are not facts. There are so many ways that our felt experience of God is not a reliable guide to our relationship with God. So we predictably feel distant from God in so many ways, despite constant nearness. And our deepest problems with anxiety might be understood in part as a symptom of this distance in this life from our maker. So that's just to tie what I'm going to say back to last week. So back to describing my day job, not to start quite so heavy. So I am a psychiatrist and a psychotherapist, and I always put the qualifier, I'm actually primarily a psychotherapist, because the disorders that I specialize in in treating are disorders that do not respond to medication. Uh, Medications may be supportive, may be helpful, we say adjunctively, meaning secondarily, but for the most part problems of self-harm and suicidality and the kind of anxiety and depression that I see day in and day out are not cured with medications or other somatic therapies like shock treatment ECT magnet treatment TMS ketamine treatments and so forth and all of the other biological treatments that are uh, are ever so popular but primarily i use talk therapy so of course i'm the perfect person to talk with you tonight about anxiety because i know all the tricks for managing it and i've learned to raise myself up to be impervious to anxiety right If that was really true, you probably wouldn't be very inspired to listen to me talk about managing anxiety if I was someone who didn't feel stricken with it myself. So the truth be told, I get plenty anxious. Not long ago, I had a walloping dose of anxiety about a patient I'm going to tell you about. I'd been treating in psychotherapy for about a year. And of course, as a doctor, I'm used to beginning talks with a case presentation. So this is a comfortable format that puts my anxiety at ease with all of you. Though I do have to caution you, the subject matter is in its own way a bit grave. So the patient, and the details of this have been modified, the patient is a man in his early 20s who was born and raised in Japan and then moved to the U.S. for college about four years ago. His college trajectory has been interrupted by multiple suicide attempts, leading to multiple psychiatric hospitalizations, nearly ending his life. His parents, on the one hand, care about him dearly and live on the edge of fear and worry about his life. And on the other hand, they are rather dismissive of his core emotional experience out of their own tendencies to minimize and underexpress their own emotional life and, inadvertently, in their insistence on their son's impeccable school performance at all costs. They struggle to understand and accept his emotional difficulties. And each of his suicide attempts occurred in the context of feeling paralyzed by fear of failing at his schoolwork, as though his mind would break under the pressure to excel. Not too long ago, this is a patient, a true patient of mine, not too long ago this patient had reported acutely escalating emotional difficulties around returning to school for the first time, after an extended period of intensive psychiatric treatment. It is now November at the time this was happening, and he's three months into his first semester back. But he's been unable to turn in a single assignment out of fear that his work will not measure up to his own or his parents' standards. Now all of his assignments are overdue, and he knows the best grade he can get on most of them, even if he were to turn them all in, are C's and D's. Unfortunately, he is also cursed by knowing that he's, in fact, quite bright. And he feels certain that he should be getting straight A's. He's destined for it. There's an unbridgeable gap between where he is and where he feels he should be. And his sense of his own value and worth as a person is plummeting downward once again. He's back to questioning what life is for. He's returned to the brink of seriously and actively contemplating suicide. So what happened next that made me suddenly very anxious and worried was that my patient did not show up on Zoom at the appointed hour for his session with me. This was a first. Previously, he'd always been on time for our sessions, always punctual. And now it was almost 30 minutes in. And not only was he not there, but he was not responding to my texts or phone calls to check in. Concerning, right? So I reached out to the rest of my team to collect more information and found out that just that morning in a group therapy session, he had seemed inconsolable to the leader of the group. I then learned from his family therapist that he had gone on from that group directly into a family therapy session, in which his parents had become quite exasperated with him and had communicated they couldn't understand why he wouldn't just turn in the homework, just turn in the papers. And he left that meeting angry and in tears, likely deeply ashamed. So these circumstances now seem dangerously close to those surrounding every single one of his previous suicide attempts, which we'd studied in detail. <clears throat> I was becoming more and more worried about him with every new piece of information I was learning about where things were at for him that day. As my frame of reference was widening, I became more and more worried. My own growing fear told me that I needed more information. I needed to further expand the scope of what I knew before I could reassure myself that he was safe. So I asked another clinician on our team who does home visits, occasionally, to stop by and check on him. An hour later this clinician reported to me that she had found my patient in his room taking a nap. Apparently he awakened calmly and explained that he yes he was struggling that morning, but he had not taken any action against his own life, that he was fine, and he would be fine, and just leave him alone. And my frame of knowledge about my patient's circumstances and my own fearful feeling had expanded yet again, with more information. And this time, the expansion was relieving. So much about what makes us more or less anxious depends on the frame through which we view our current circumstances, right? So let's recap. One minute before our session that morning was to start, I was not worried, because my expectations had not yet been challenged. Five minutes later, when he didn't show, I was a little worried. 30 minutes later, and after hearing about the, the morning's events, was very worried. 60 minutes later, after I learned that he had merely taken a nap, I was relieved. I thought, ah, now I've got more information. The frame is wider. He's safe. I'm safe. I can rest easy now with my current frame of reference around my anxiety, right? I'm good, right? The truth be told... I was relieved only for about half an hour because then the frame of reference in my mind expanded yet again. Past the missed session, past hearing about his mounting acute distress that morning, past my knowledge of the nap, to ponder the wider terms and conditions of his life at that very moment and my role in it. None of that stuff had actually changed at all by learning that he was just napping all the internal psychological burdens that I'd come to understand that this young man was carrying were firmly in place. All the external events that had happened that week, which by my best predictions would have been expected to drive him towards suicide again, it had all still happened. It had just happened. And all of this was almost certainly still exerting its effect somewhere, in some way, that I couldn't see. I suddenly felt plunged right back into fear. Not only was the wider frame no longer relieving, it also seemed to expose the inadequacy of the previous frame I'd been leaning upon to manage my fear. And I thought, my God, I may never be free of fear about the safety of this person and the fate of our work together and his ultimate fate in the world. I shuddered as I went home that night. And then I thought more broadly about the uncertain terms and conditions of my own life, my role in the lives of my family, my friends. And in my family at that moment, we happened to be dealing with a death in our extended family, a young husband and father, a new father, who died unexpectedly in his sleep. And I was thinking, I'm a husband and a father, and there's really nowhere I can look for total assurance that the same fate won't befall me. So although we rely on this process of frame setting and frame expanding to manage our fears, that process is so much more fragile and untrustworthy than we would like to think. How can we ever be sure that we've widened the frame sufficiently to find the correct frame? Is there any frame of reference that can ever provide a solid bedrock for fear? So in the rest of the talk, I hope to explore with you this frame-setting problem concerning this anxiety that seems to metastasize beyond any frame that we put around it at a time when anxiety is very much on the rise. Now, I am aware that there's probably a thousand talks on anxiety from a Christian perspective, in the Libri database. So I'm hoping that some of this will be something new for you. We're going to first look through a naturalistic frame of reference at some of the anxieties that have intensified for all of us at some level during the pandemic. Then look at some of the strengths and limitations of how psychotherapy and psychiatry propose that those fears can be managed. And then consider how the Christian worldview provides three life-giving frame expansions corresponding to each person of the Trinity that can make all the difference about how we live through the anxiety of our age. So let's look first at some of the current sources of our deepest shared fears. As we do this, my first proposal, and I I was going to apologize for not having slides and Rather, I'm going to be proud for not having this <laughs> My first proposal, you'll just have to listen, is that as we examine our human condition, using a merely human frame of reference, we have good reasons to be anxious and afraid. Now, since I'm speaking to deep uh, guests of Labrie, who I, I imagine rightly believe in the power of the mind and the arts and the mind for processing truth and beauty and goodness, it may may or may not be the most natural turn for you all to admit that you're deeply anxious and afraid. Or maybe that comes naturally to you. It doesn't come naturally to me. If you're not someone who either feels easily anxious or admits that you're anxious very easily, it's time to wake up and open your eyes and look around at the world and get in touch with the anxiety of our age and spoke about the fallenness last week so poignantly. But speaking about anxiety from a clinical perspective, we know, many of you already know, it is is on the rise during the pandemic. The general statistics about wellness and psychiatric illness of all kinds during the pandemic have now rolled out, and they confirm what we already know by intuition. Increasing anxiety, increasing depression, suicide, relapse, on alcohol and substances. I'll caveat this, because I try to stay up on the the literature and the evidence. There was a report that came out last week that there's actually, for the first time, been a downturn in suicide. And there's interesting theories about why that might be. People think it might have to do with a turn toward meaning-making, brought on by the pandemic, but we'll come back to that. The American Psychiatric Association did recently release the results of a study in which 62% of Americans reported feeling more anxious in 2020 compared to the previous year. The top cause of anxiety in this study was concern about keeping oneself or one's family safe. Partly, but not entirely related to concerns about COVID-19. Other top sources of fear in this study were gun violence, the presidential election, the impact of systemic racism and structural inequities in our world. But we didn't need COVID to become increasingly anxious as a society. In the same study, we learned that for each of the past three years leading up to 2020, just below 40% of Americans reported feeling more anxious compared with each year prior. So what else is going on that is making our society clinically more anxious? This is now robustly established. That could, of course, be a much more far-ranging discussion. But what's Libri for except for far-ranging discussion? <laughs> but most experts agree that one of the major causes is the increase in social isolation. Loneliness, disconnection, as we're losing proximity to one another increasingly. While many of us, of course, are working to stay more connected, there's something about being more fundamentally alone and disconnected from one another that is inherently deeply problematic for us as human beings, and it draws out our our deeply embedded anxieties about our place in the world. Before I go much further, though, to better contextualize this discussion of anxiety and fear, let me share some basic perspectives on how we understand anxiety within a general psychiatric and psychological frame. Some of this is probably going to be old hat for many of you so like any psychological experience happening inside a brain anxiety can be studied and conceptualized at multiple levels and we could slice this pie in all manner of ways but let's do it in a threefold way for tonight first biological what are populations of neurons and clusters of neurotransmitters and network circuits in the brain doing biological questions What about a psychological understanding of what's happening in the mind? How are we interpreting? How are we representing? How are we making meaning out of and reacting to events in ways that are not so easily reducible to a merely physical level, but that are primarily sensible to us on the notion that we have minds, not just brains? And thirdly, as a Christian, I would include phenomena that are essentially spiritual. How is what is happening in a mind related to God's action towards us or our responses or lack thereof toward Him? So, what are some basic things we can say at each of these three levels about anxiety? Well, at a biological level, one simple and admittedly oversimplified way of thinking about what's happening when we feel anxious is that a portion of our brains, known as the amygdala, which is a fun word to say, is responsible for managing certain emotional responses, like the fight-or-flight reflex. That portion of the brain becomes stimulated by a cue, either from our outside environment, like a light or a sound, or our inner world, like a memory or a thought. And when the amygdala is firing at a certain intensity and frequency, the signal that it sends to associated brain regions may trip up the normal regulatory functioning of those systems. You all probably know one of the most important brain regions that's connected with the amygdala, the fear center, is the prefrontal cortex, which is the most highly developed area of our brains and responsible for some of our most complex, highest order psychological and cognitive functions. So a normal signal of fear from inside the amygdala eventually recruits the prefrontal cortex to come back online and help us think through and respond sensibly to even the most intense feelings. Sending the signal for reinforcements. But for all of us, this takes time. This is not instantaneous. Such that, years ago, when I was pedaling my bicycle by the Charles River at nighttime in Cambridge, and suddenly heard a rustle in the bushes next to me, suddenly my body was pedaling at lightning speed. Before my cortical thinking kicked in to actually consider the various possibilities of what might have been in the bushes, which was very likely not the monstrous thing that my amygdala had cooked up, more likely just a strong breeze. Now, this is a vastly oversimplified understanding, but it can suffice to help us remember that what's going on in our brains at a physical level has some correlation with and influence upon what we experience at the level of mind, at the psychological level. And this is really important because we know that individuals, all of us, have between-person differences in the biological sensitivity of these regions of the brain. to emotional overwhelm. to cues of certain types, from the outer world and the inner world. And some of us will have an overactive or hypersensitive amygdala, or will have a prefrontal cortex that's more easily shocked by the fear signal and takes longer to come back online and bring the needed reinforcements to restore the needed balance between thought and emotion. And some of us have both problems. So now if we turn to thinking at a psychological level about anxiety, there's lots of ways, again, to slice the pie and classify different kinds of fears. But one basic way is to distinguish between fears that are adaptive and fears that are considered non-adaptive or unhelpful or even potentially harmful if we act on them. A central adaptive function of anxiety is to inform us about a real uncertainty or threat that we must accept or otherwise deal with to survive. Earlier in the pandemic, when most people who were not yet vaccinated rightfully had some level of fear about contracting COVID-19, that motivated many of us to take behavioral precautions like wearing a mask But for anxiety to be truly adaptive for us, one important condition that must obtain is that the anxiety cannot become overly generalized beyond the true scope of the threat. So, for example, a general fear of snakes is helpful when it steers us clear of boa constrictors and king cobras and certain kinds of asps. But if it becomes too generalized to all snakes or all reptiles, then we're going to be running away from harmless garter snakes on the lawn. So over the course of our development, life generally helps us calibrate our fear response through teaching us which fears correspond to objective, true risk in the world and which do not, and thus can be shed over time. In our household, we have a mantra that goes... It's scary, but not dangerous. <laughs> that You think this is just for the children, but this is, this is really for me. Scary, Dad. It's not dangerous. <laughs> and this emphasizes first validating that indeed a lot of life is truly scary. But not all of our fears are reliable guides to what to think or how to behave. In this way, my daughter was able, eventually, with primarily her mother's help, to get onto the Little Mermaid ride at Disney World and confront the animatronic Ursula. <laughs> and my sons can play with flashlights without running away from ominous shadows. Because they're scary, but not dangerous. Ursula's scary, actually, I mean, even, even now. So you notice in these simple childhood examples that the way we judge which fears are adaptive and which are destructive is based largely on an assessment that we make about whether the intensity and the duration of our fear is proportionate to the level of the true risk or threat. Does it fit the facts? We sometimes try to help our patients think. Does the intensity and the duration of your fear fit the facts? This is called the skill of fact-checking. And it's simple enough to do when one does not have a severe anxiety disorder. Or when one is evaluating commonplace, concrete examples, and when we find the facts are clearly on the side of reassuring ourselves. When it comes to some of our COVID anxiety that many of us were feeling a year ago, this approach lent some useful strategies for preventing overwhelming panic, in most parts of the country anyway. For example, I could feel less anxious just by checking the news, in hopes of finding that the numbers of new cases were starting to decline or by going and learning about some behavioral changes that I could make to cut down on my own risk of getting the virus. But what about when our anxiety is more existential and actually escalates the more we consider the true extent and nature of the perceived threat? I think that there are several types of this form of anxiety that were exacerbated by the pandemic that many of us found it harder to reassure ourselves about and do that fact-checking thing. To give just four types of examples that have been really prominent um, in my life, in my friends' lives, my patients' lives over the last year. First and foremost, anxiety about our basic health, ourselves, and the our health of our loved ones. If you were the father of a teenager during this pandemic, then in the chaos, you had probably had to live with some anxiety knowing that there was no way to be completely assured that they were using perfect precautions and wouldn't get this virus when you were not around. Second of all, there's separation anxiety, worries about disconnection from one another. Thirdly, there's something that's called anticipatory grief. It's one of my new favorite expressions. Dr. Kessler at Harvard talks about this. Anticipatory grief is anxiety about the losses we have yet to face, the changes to our lives we cannot yet anticipate. What would it mean when we eventually would return to life if if we might find it forever changed? And finally, fourthly, the, the COVID crisis provoked us to return to a fundamental state of existential anxiety about the very terms and conditions of our lives. This may have something to do with the reduction in suicide. I'm referring to the larger, less easily answerable threats that loom larger and larger the more we ponder them. What did it mean that the ordinary things we counted on and took for granted could so easily be swept away by this tiny little virus? What does it mean that people we loved are dead because of this virus? If we can't prevent the level of loss that we're seeing mounting up day by day around us? So with those sorts of anxiety in mind, or as you ponder more personal aspects of your lives tonight that go beyond your control and you know they're beyond your control, Guests of Labrie, which anxieties of our time are most personally hitting you? Think beyond your next round of papers or projects or exams or the report you need to do when you go back. Or Which of your best laid plans have been thwarted? Where are you feeling disempowered to enact a particular future you banked on? What hopes have you had for yourself or a loved one that have been dashed against the rocks this past year, exposed, to have been fruitless wishes and desires which you could not through your own efforts bring about. What leaves you most anxious, worried, and in despair? So let's try a little interactive exposure right now. Everybody sit. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> not yet. So as we recognize these inescapable sources of anxiety, how can we possibly manage them? Well, one place that many people turn to is psychiatry and psychotherapy. And as somebody very familiar with delivering evidence-based treatments, the gold standard treatments for anxiety of all different types, I can say that there is indeed a lot of good that these approaches have to offer. Just to briefly name a few that many of you might have heard of, a lot of these techniques that I'll just kind of briefly catalog come from cognitive behavioral Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, CBT. Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, DBT. Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, MBSR. You have to have an acronym if you develop a, a psychotherapy. So first we have mindfulness techniques. It's a rich repository. Extremely helpful. Broadly speaking, mindfulness is about bringing your attention to bear on just what is true and observable about yourself and your surroundings in a neutral non-judgmental, observational way. And we have relaxation techniques. Change the contents of your mind by changing your physiology. Relax your muscles through doing some paced breathing, diaphragmatic breathing, which I can do a seminar on after this, if you're interested. Progressive muscle relaxation. Actually, extremely, extremely effective, actually, when you learn to do it the right way, if anybody's familiar with that. Standing on your tiptoes. doesn't seem like it would be very relaxing, but it does activate what we call the proprioceptive sense. You have more senses than just the five that we normally think of. This is a special one. It's position and space. Standing on your tiptoes doesn't feel relaxing, but it can relax our anxieties that move in one direction by distracting us. Because it's hard to be thinking about you know, your next paper when you're just nervous about falling over. <laughs> so it's a kind of sort of sleight of hand, a uh, distraction. Then we have just classic distraction techniques, which basically I understand as swiveling the spotlight of our attention off of our anxiety-provoking thoughts, moving... Our mind to attend to more neutral thought material, or material that cultivates other emotions. So, one of my favorite patients that came up with this. I'd never heard of this, um, one classic technique that we use is, you know, making lists. If you're a little obsessional like me, you like to make lists of things, like favorite, you know, songs that start with the letter A from mid mid nineteen eighties, you know, something like that. Uh, one hit wonders from the early nineties. One of my favorite patients memorized the British monarchy, the entire lineage of the British monarchy, all the way back to the beginning. She would recite this to help herself swivel that spotlight off of more anxiety-provoking thoughts, and it worked, it worked like a charm. Some distraction techniques just serve to generate a different emotional experience than the anxiety that we're feeling. So there are ways to cultivate joy. There are ways to cultivate gratitude, cultivate laughter, uh, I'm a fan of horror movies, strangely, really? but oh the feeling, you know, make yourself afraid of Freddy Krueger actually helps in a, in a strange way. A lot of there's studies been done of this, makes you a little less afraid of uh, things that you're you're afraid. No, not for Nikhil. <laughs> there's some there's some st- I gotta say there's some evidence for this actually that people who are major fans of horror movies were less anxious during the pandemic.
4: Really. Right. Yeah. Make of that what you will.
3: They may have had other kinds of problems, but... (laughs) No, I'm a fan. We can talk about that in the next talk. How can you be a Christian and a huge fan of horror movies? Um, Fact-checking. We talked about fact-checking. This is, again, using reliable sources of information to examine the likelihood of the feared thing actually happening. This doesn't work for most of my patients because it relies on that prefrontal cortex being intact enough and online enough so they can be recruited, so that the reinforcements are not just on their way, but they've actually arrived. It's, it's sort of expecting its unfallen expectations in a fallen world, as Joshua talked about two weeks ago, I think, two weeks. I'm going to be, if I need a new job, I'm going to become the catalogist for, for all the Libri the archives. <laughs> <laughs>
2: this
3: is my own list making. <laughs> so across all of these and many other psychotherapy models, this is a vast oversimplification, but these are some of the common techniques that we teach and that are useful. But the ultimate empirical strategy for managing anxiety is often what we just call acceptance. Sometimes we call it acceptance and approach rather than avoidance. Approach and accept, rather than avoid. What are we approaching and accepting? Reality as it actually is. Facing the fall, I think. And this goes by various names. If it's an approach technique for treating obsessional compulsive disorder, we call it ERP, exposure and response prevention. Extremely successful therapy for OCD. If it's more broadly targeting other Areas that we tend to avoid in our lives, other emotions or, or situations that we avoid. Sometimes we call it ACT, A C T, acceptance and commitment therapy. You get the feeling, again, there's countless acronyms. <laughs> but um, the core principles are, are, are the common denominators that you're hearing me say right now. This ERP thing, exposure and response prevention, is an empirically derived model for helping us block maladaptive responses to anxiety. This is what we call avoidance behaviors and escape behaviors. It's just running in the house when I see a garter snake. That actually, it helps me escape the threat, the perceived threat in the moment, right? That's my avoidance behavior. I literally run in the house and rather than approach and avoid, get closer to the garter snake. Even try to catch it and hold it and talk to it, right? That's approach and avoid and... Exposure therapists do crazy things like that. Help people do crazy things like that. Works extremely well. Face the fear. The thing that we're doing in these models is helping people fully face and tolerate the emotions that are generated by facing some unavoidable element in their reality. Acceptance. So let's consider how this works for somebody who is avoiding certain scenarios because of fear of getting covid I have a patient who uh, never or rarely went outside during the pandemic. A few patients, actually. Almost never went outside for a year or longer. Okay. Previously, high-functioning person, never went outside. And that helped these individuals feel less acutely afraid of getting COVID in the short term. And in the ERP model, we call that avoidance behavior. And that can be a healthy response within a limited scope but it isn't as life gradually trickles back towards something resembling normalcy. It's not a healthy response now. That level of self-sequestration and quarantine is not as healthy a response now as it was a year ago. In order to choose the other pathway of approach and accept, we have to anchor ourselves in continuous contact with some fundamental fact or truth about reality. And for many people, facing severe forms of anxiety that benefit from these kinds of treatments, this comes down to facing an ultimate uncertainty and powerlessness over controlling what happens to us in all kinds of ways. But here we hit a major limitation and loophole of these strategies. These models are extremely helpful when it comes to managing in the face of risks that we can do things to prevent. But again, what about those ultimate fears and traumas and threats that we all face which are not actually going to be preventable like disconnection and estrangement from those we love loss and death of those we love as well as our own. And I would contend that on naturalistic we'll just say secular working models in psychiatry and psychotherapy the best hope we have is to accept the ultimate reality of our powerlessness in the face of this kind of suffering, and to acknowledge it is what it
2: is.
3: (laughs) That that's the ultimate nature of life. We are but a flicker on the world's impersonal screen. And that, for me, for my patients, maybe for you, that seems like no recipe for managing our most ultimate fears. So to sum up where we're at so far, since I don't have slides, I've suggested that the available secular, psychiatric, and psychotherapeutic approaches for managing anxiety are quite helpful for managing anxiety when it comes to specific, concrete threats, when it is possible to minimize, or in some cases, completely neutralize or avoid the threat. But when it comes to the more unavoidable existential anxieties all of us face, more acutely now, in this age, the psychiatric world's techniques for managing anxiety have a major existential loophole. And it's this, that as we've seen, some of our most disquieting forms of anxiety are not so clearly unjustified or out of proportion with reality. Sometimes our fears are based in truly unavoidable, disconcerting realities. Like, again, the inevitability of suffering. We can't get away from it, as Ben talked about last week. Everything is bent by the fall. The disconnection from and loss of our loved ones, our inability to protect those we love, the tragedy that some children die before their parents, the reality of human evil, including that some die by others' hands, the fears that we have of ending up alone, fears of failing, and being proved as not good enough, fears of being unloved, or loved only conditionally based on how we perform. As soon as we again turn our attention back to those anxieties, we get that nausea that Sartre spoke of, and we feel a sense of the absurdity of life that Camus spoke of. And my favorite thing that I read that was in short form during the pandemic was this piece that I just chanced across in the New York Times. I don't know if anybody saw it, by the author. I'm going to mispronounce it, uh, Alain de Botton, oh,
4: yeah.
3: drawing, yeah. yeah, yeah, drawing lessons from the COVID era from Camus' novel *The Plague*, mm-hmm. which tells the story about a doctor and the contagion. He's fighting the spread of this unknown contagion. And the author of the editorial, De Botton, writes, For Camus, when it comes to dying, there's no progress in history. There's no escape from our frailty. Being alive always was and will always remain an emergency. It is truly an inescapable underlying condition. Plague or no plague, there is always, as it were, the plague. If what we mean by that is a susceptibility to sudden death, an event that can just render our lives instantaneously meaningless. And de goes on to say, suffering is randomly distributed. It makes no sense. It is simply absurd. And that is the kindest thing one can say of it. And the author later sums all of this up in, I think, one of the most brilliant, pithy one-liners I've ever heard. Life is a hospice, not a hospital. Life is a hospice, not a hospital. And he goes on to point back to Camus. He says, Camus speaks to us in our own times, not because he was a magical seer who could intimate what the best epidemiologists of COVID could not, but because he correctly sized up human nature. He knew, as we do not, that everyone has it inside himself, this plague, because no one, no one is immune. So for those of us in Camus' camp, contending with that inescapable kind of fear, who recognize that life is a hospice, not a hospital, the pandemic is just a spark that punctuates our awareness of these inescapable limitations as human beings. And in the face of that reality, as a psychiatrist and a therapist, I would say it starts to feel disingenuous at best, even downright absurd, to try to tell my patients or myself, this too shall pass. It is what it is. This That approach just tinges life with this inescapable absurdity. And it becomes disingenuous to say we're working toward creating our own meaning if life is but a vapor. So how can I center myself and settle my anxieties through merely focusing on my own breath, which is another classic technique for managing anxiety. Very useful, not knocking it. But how can I center myself on my own breath when I know at any moment my own breath may be stolen from me? How can I escape my anxiety over making meaningful choices in life if I believe that deep down life may be meaningless? How can I make meaning out of a life of serving others if I believe deep down that their lives have no lasting meaning as well? And there's further, for many of us, a moral anxiety that comes when we examine ourselves according to the very standards of goodness that we would profess. If anything should give us anxiety, it's the thought that we in some way might be fallen. Thinking about what we've fallen from and what we're falling to. In some way we're enemies of an ultimate goodness in the world. Is there a greater fear than that? So the reality is, and hopefully I'm not making this in too too belabored a way, the reality is, and I see this day in and day out in my clinical practice, the best of therapeutic techniques can let us down and leave us feeling woefully incomplete. So we've so far left out a spiritual understanding of anxiety. And we've seen, I hope, that within a secular frame, approaching these problems, We have good reasons to remain deeply anxious. So in the last section of the talk, I want us to consider these three frame-expanding moves that can be made within the Christian worldview that can utterly transform our approach to anxiety. None of this directly argues for the truth of the Christian worldview. It does indirectly, which is maybe a topic for another time. I'm not making that case tonight, though, because... The Christian worldview is a powerful, unique transformer of our anxieties, that therefore it's true. But I, I think it can be made. It has been made here in, the, in these four walls. So, first, as we expand the frame to include the vision of God the Father, we have good reason for an ultimate frame of hope. The Bible tells us that we have a God who loves to comfort and encourage those who are anxious and afraid. There's so many passages I could have picked for that to illustrate this, and I hope you'll spend some time finding your own. I'll just share a few. One of my favorites to share is, uh, in 1 Kings chapter 19, I often talk about this passage. It shows Elijah, this, you know, quintessential man of God, drowning in depression, not just anxiety, but depression and isolation, and in fact, suicidal longing. If you read it carefully, he's got the symptoms of depression, it sounds like, and he sounds quite, quite Suicidal in a sense, and you'd think that he's too blessed to get depressed, if you know his story. Now he's, he's 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 been party to and a an agent in seeing God do incredible things, but now he's dejected and he's depleted and he's running away from his own life. And he'd done everything he thought he could, and now he's sure he has nothing left to give, and he's disappointed because in his mind, his mission of showing Yahweh to Ahab and Jezebel has utterly failed again, he seems depressed. He's isolating, he's withdrawing, he's hopeless, he can't experience pleasure, even in his recent mountaintop experiences with the Lord. He's feeling worthless. And the place that he'd run to was at the end of the line, because beyond it there was nothing but desert. You get the sense, he'd left his servant behind, journeyed an additional day, beyond that, into the wilderness. And we have to wonder, did he have any intent of coming back? At some point he stops running and he asks God to take his life, saying, I'm no better than my ancestors. And that worthlessness and that overly intense guilt, again, depressive symptoms. Then out of sheer exhaustion, he just falls asleep. And it's amazing to think of how God then meets him in that place. And um, I could do a whole other talk on this, but it's to say the first thing God does is address the the biology, the physical needs. Make sure that he's rested. Gives him a nap. And, and he makes sure he's fed and ready to hear what God has to say on a spiritual and psychological level. And then after meeting the physical needs, God's a good therapist. He helps him reframe, not by just giving him the answer, but he asks him a searching question. What are you doing here, Elijah? And his answer indicates he's kind of lost perspective still. And then, of course, there's the climax of the story. You know, there's this holy kind of cacophony. God passes by, and it seems to be this great epiphany, but even after that, Elijah still holds a short-sighted perspective. The frame is too small, and then God speaks to expand the frame, widen his frame on this situation. He says, basically, Elijah says, God, I'm the only one left. But the Lord answers, no, there's 7,000 others in Israel. Go read the story if you're not familiar with it. And he reframes Elijah's fuzzy perspective by pointing out there's a remnant, there's a hope that was outside of your current frame. He's saying basically look up, see that God's ultimate per- perspective on current events, and be strengthened by the reminder that your perspective is not the widest frame. And then get on with it. Look forward and keep moving, even if you're still anxious. Elijah had said, I'm no better than my ancestors, just let me die. But as long as there's life and breath, God has a plan, and there's a job to do. There's a job for us to do. And moving through our fear and uncertainty is possible because we know that we see only through a glass darkly at this time. So God in this story is beginning to provide some of the wider perspective that would allow Elijah to pull himself up and keep going. But it's quite challenging, right, to believe that that higher perspective is actually out there. I know it personally, my patients know it, I'm sure you know it. When we don't feel the perspective is being given to us, we don't get as full a glimpse as we need or deserve. At the end of the biblical account, in the book of Revelation, we are given this vision of assurance that the Lord will wipe away every tear. That's the ultimate picture. Revelation 21 been uttered many times here at Libri in the past, I'm sure, but it never fails to kind of take take your breath away. Even if you don't believe it's true, it's a beautiful vision. We want it to be true. In Psalm 131, 131, you see God lifting King David's eyes up a little higher to the horizon. David says, we think this is a psalm. I, I actually, this may be not be a King David psalm. This is maybe the psalmist. Uh, I, can't, I actually can't recall. But the, the writer says, o, heart, o Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And again, is an example of the writer looking up to the God of the heavens to situate a wider frame around his fear. And I dare say that that revelation hope that I just read in the Father's ultimate plan for our lives may have been what inspired this famous non-scriptural example of looking up to the heavens that I'm going to read you now. I can't come to Labrie without saying something from J.R.R. Tolkien. <laughs> Tolkien, Tolkien, we could have a debate about that. But I'm going to go, I'm gonna, it's a double quote of Stephen Colbert. I don't know if anybody saw this. It's amazing. One of the best things I've seen on, on YouTube, on tele, public television, any time in the last few years. Colbert quoted this from memory, which I wish I could do. This is the part from uh, Return of the King where Frodo and Sam are carrying the ring of power just across the border of Mordor to the plain of Gorgoroth. So I'm just going to read, read this to you. And again, Think about that revelation, hope, and the psalmist's eyes being lifted up. What lifts the eyes up? What is the ultimate frame? When Sam thought of water, even his hopeful spirit quailed. Beyond the Morgai, there was the dreadful plain of Gorgoroth to cross. Now you go to sleep first, Mr. Frodo, he said. It's getting dark again. Frodo was asleep almost before the words were spoken. Sam struggled with his own weariness, and he took Frodo's hand, and there he sat silent till deep night fell. Then at last, to keep himself awake, he crawled from the hiding place. The land seemed full of noises, but there was no sound of voice or of foot. Far above the Ephel In the west, the night sky was still dim. There, peeping among the cloud rack, above a dark tor high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Back to last week's talk. What does the doctrine of the fall teach us about where we've fallen from? That is the view of God the Father. That's espoused by the writer of Isaiah 41. Where God says, do not fear, for I am with you, for I am your God. Second as we widen the perspective to include a vision of Jesus the Son, we have a good, reliable person to trust and follow. Not just an abstract, not just a concept. A good, reliable person. Just like the buddy Jesus, the buddy Christ. Remember that? As if we could reduce Jesus to an action figure. But it is fun to think, if he was an action hero, which one would he be? Well, my favorite action hero growing up, uh, I don't know if we could call him an action hero, anti-hero maybe, Steven Seagal. (laughs) He probably wouldn't be like Steven Seagal for many reasons, Uh, but mainly this one. Uh, While I like watching Steven Seagal's sort of now dwindling mastery of certain martial arts, but it doesn't stir me to any deeper admiration or inspiration. Except when we wonder how can he kick so high looking the way that he is. The action and adventure heroes that we most admire are not the ones who are impervious to feeling fear. But those who feel it and then somehow steal themselves and get on with it, despite their fear. Frodo mm-hmm. says, I will take the ring, though I know not the way. Indiana Jones, currently huge hit in my house. <laughs> I got a bad feeling about this. Or I hate snakes. I hate snakes. But then he plunges into the pit of snakes. And this fits with what we want as children. You're still with me? Can I go a little longer? How's our time? I'm going longer. Are you guys okay?
4: Yeah. okay?
3: I think these visions fit with what we desire as children. So I'm going to do a little primer on attachment theory. The basic takeaway here is that the way we all listen and learn best about fear is by being around others who, number one, see our fear for what it is. It resonates with them. They they see our fear for what it is in us. But they also themselves have experienced their own fear and have, if not conquered it, at least metabolized it. At least learn to live with it. And they communicate back to us. That they see it, they feel it, but there's a wider frame on it. That's how we all learn to self-regulate. Not just around fear, but shame, sadness, grief, and so forth. Imagine a baby with total need... And no power, this is all babies, total need and no power to provide for those needs on his or her own. All the baby can do is cry out in distress. If all goes well, the baby's cry of pain and torment brings a response from the parent. And that response, again, has several components. If it goes well, first, that caregiver comes up close and comes alongside. Alongside what? The child's distress caregiver does not hover authoritatively over the child and preach at them or tell them what to do it's an empathic it's a contingent response it's contingent on the child's experience and the level of what they can take in from the world the parent comes up close as if to say I see your pain as fully as I can it doesn't have to be perfect and with human caregivers it never is never is a perfect scene of our pain. It is what we want as children. We could come back and do another talk on how we idealize our caregivers and then we devalue them. We go back and forth and back and forth throughout our lives. Basic Mm -hmm. psychodynamics. But as kids, what we want is an ideal caregiver. Mm The one who sees us perfectly. Mm -hmm. Every time we cry, the food supply should be there. The comforter should be there. That is the psychophysiologic expectation of all of us. It's wired into us to expect that and look for that in the world. But we never find it. It's an interesting biological, psychological, and potentially spiritual fact. We're wired to look for it. and We never find it. Back to the fall. The parents or caregivers' response is not it's also not just a merger with the child's fear. If the child is screaming in terror, the I think I acted this out with, with Ben last time I was here. I think I asked Ben to scream like a, like a baby. And you did a great job with that. I won't, I won't ask for a, another one. And then we sort of acted this out, if I remember right. Maybe this was just in my head. but um, I But <laughs> that's called repression. Um, but as we say... <laughs> There's a three letter word treatment for that. It's ERP. We can do that. But we say that the caregivers, as ideal a caregiver response as we can get in this life, what we call it in technical language is it's marked contingent mirroring. That's the fancy speak. It's, it's contingent to the child's fear. It's a mirroring of it in a sense. The child has to see that the caregiver feels it on some level too. But it's marked as not the same. It's not that if the child is screaming, ah, the caregiver leans down and gets on their level and screams back, ah, in exactly the same tone and pitch and intensity. What would that communicate? That would communicate, there's no metabolism of this fear in the caregiver. There's there's no hope. There's nothing. There's no hope. So that's a clean enough model for thinking about how we self-regulate around fear when we're talking about a child who's hungry or thirsty or needs a diaper change or has a splinter in their hand, when the problem can be concretely solved or managed by a simple perspective shift or the presence of the food source or a pointing to a concrete skill that can be used by a therapist. But not so when the problems are existential a fundamental mistrust of our own goodness, our own capacity for goodness, uh, an overestimation of our own goodness, an underestimation of, uh, of, of God's intent to redeem us, uh, a deep suspiciousness of other people. Um, when I consider as a therapist, as somebody who believes in the powerful proximity of a loving human other, I do believe in that. It's, it's an archetype. It's a, it's being a little Christ to someone. What I come up against is the, the discovery and the rediscovery over and over again that who I really am as a person is susceptible to all manner of emotional pain that exists at a forever social distance that no one can perfectly see and understand and help me regulate. Others can only be helpful to me in managing that pain imperfectly. So ironically, the proximity of loving others ultimately points me past the limits of imperfect human proximity to my longing for that more perfect ideal response. I don't just want a therapist. I want the the best, the perfect therapist. We long not just for others who can come up close, who can have that proximity to our pain, not be repulsed by it, but those who can give us some hope that it can be transformed. And Christians believe that we have a God who knows firsthand what it is to fear. Not secondhand, by watching the subject of Jesus down below. Jesus wasn't a test probe sent into the universe to collect data and bring it back to the Father. Jesus is God in the flesh. God knows firsthand. God firsthand is the all-powerful and all-vulnerable God. And if he's really both, then he would be the only figure who could really transform our approach to anxiety. But there is, I think, a barrier in some Christian circles to thinking that Jesus was ever truly afraid and vulnerable like us. Was he really vulnerable like us in that same way? Mm-hmm. I think that's contended in some Christian circles. Mm-hmm. I don't know what Labrie thinks of it, per se, but we often don't think of God that way. you know. But he was fully God, right? So he couldn't have been terrified, really, We think of him as the antidote to fear. He's the antidote to other people's fears. He calls out to invite Peter to follow him on the water. Um, Even the post-resurrection appearances. Don't be afraid, he shows up saying. He's the antidote to everybody else's fear. He can't really have been afraid himself. But just like we have deep grounds for believing that Jesus felt the depths of human sadness, not just the Lazarus story, but but that's a good one. So too do we have deep grounds, I think, for believing that he knew the full anguish of fear. So I want to read from C.S. Lewis. This is from um, it's from the C.S. Lewis Bible. Uh, but it's from, it's from Letters to Malcolm, the original source. Uh, notes on Prayer. This is rich for me. Uh, this I should have a slide for because it's kind of an extended quote, but Try to try to follow me. So he's writing about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mm-hmm. It is clear from many of his sayings that our Lord had long foreseen his own death. He knew what conduct such as his in a world such as we have must inevitably lead to. But it is clear that this knowledge must somehow have been withdrawn from him before he prayed in Gethsemane. He could not, with whatever reservation he had about the Father's will, he could not have prayed that the cup might pass and simultaneously known that it would not. That is both a logical and a psychological impossibility. Do you see what this involves? Lest any trial incident to humanity be lacking... The torments of hope, of suspense, anxiety, were at the last moment loosed upon him. The supposed possibility that after all, he might, he just conceivably might, be spared the supreme horror. There was precedent for that. Isaac had been spared. He too, at the last moment. He also, against all apparent probability. It was not quite impossible. And doubtless he had seen other men crucified. But for this last and erroneous hope against hope and the consequent tumult of his soul, the sweat of blood, perhaps he would not have been very man. To live in a fully predictable world is not to be a man. We all try to accept with some sort of submission our afflictions when they actually arrive. It is what it is. But the prayer in Gethsemane shows that the preceding anxiety is equally God's will and equally part of our human destiny. The perfect man experienced it and the servant is not greater than the master. We are Christians, not Stoics. Not Buddhists. Not mindfulness gurus. We are Christians. So if you doubt... That Jesus fully was exposed to the depths of fear. Other voices point to that too. Matthew 24, verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Hmm. Separation from the Father, at least psychologically, in that moment. We know something about that. So in Jesus we have a person. A reliable person. Reliable because he's God the Father, he's fully man, all-vulnerable, all-powerful. Third, and finally, as we widen our perspective to include the Holy Spirit, we have good tools to flourish despite fear. And what I want to say in this section is, I think, a little more practical, hopefully, and a little more simple, maybe. Um, in Ephesians 6, we're told that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, and that we are to pray at all times in the Spirit. So the top two tools, at least in this passage, that the Holy Spirit gives to us are scripture and prayer. We need these two pathways constantly, to remind ourselves of the high beauty, that higher perspective of Samwise. I think about that, uh, the image of, in, in the book of James, the first chapter, looking into a mirror, excuse me. It says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, staring at the self in a mirror. Kind of narcissistic. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So, that takes some mulling over, I think, to, 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 to get that. But Christians believe that by looking into the mirror, and then back at ourselves through God's eyes, through prayer and time in Scripture, assisted by the Spirit, we can remember and wake up again, and, and reckon with what we really are, and how the world really is, and who God really is. But when we're on that plain of Gorgoroth, it's a perfect name for that place, right? Better than Mount Doom. It's kind of a lame name, I have to say. Um, When we're on the plain of Gorgoroth, it's hard to remember what that high beauty just out of reach is. So in the last section of the talk, let me just offer some practical strategies for kind of transforming some of these secular practices from the best of evidence-based Treatments for anxiety, ways to invite the spirit to come be with us in our anxieties and transform them. So these are anxiety management strategies, uh, ideally sort of baptized by or transformed by some uh, Christian principles. So the first is, let's think about breathing exercises. Well, this is one of the most common and most important exercises across many therapies for relaxing our physiology and steadying our minds. Steady the body, steady the mind. It works surprisingly well a lot of the time. You have to practice it to get this, but I've been surprised at how well it works when you practice that diaphragmatic breathing. How does it work? The basic idea is that you use your breath to fixate on a still point. Why do we choose the breath for that? Because the breath is cyclical. It has a rising and a falling pattern that undulates within us like the waves of the sea so it can be followed in a somewhat reliable way as it moves in and goes out. It's also with us wherever we go. There's nowhere we can't use our breath to steady our mind at some level. It has deep symbolic connections that are useful for meditation as we think about the material from the world that we take in and then allow to leave our minds, the coming and going of our breath, the coming and going of other material into our minds, this is immensely regulating for anxiety. It can be extremely helpful. And it's no surprise that many forms of breathing meditation practice have been developed and are evidence-based. They work. But we talked about the fundamental existential flaw with using our breath as an ultimate anchor for our existential anxieties. Because our own breath will inevitably fail us and run out. It will stop, because life's a hospital, never... Sorry, life's hospice. never a hospital, always a hospice. I knew I was going to bungle that at least once. <laughs> <laughs> life's never a hospital, always a hospice. But the Christian worldview can transform. Jesus can transform our practical use of breath to manage anxiety in a different way if we also recast its symbolic meaning within the biblical narrative. So a couple of data points on this from Scripture. First, in the book of Genesis, of course. It's God's breath that begins and sustains life, not ours. Reminder that all breath in our lungs is never by our own strength. It's traced always back to that first breath from him. Second data point in the gospel narrative of Mark. Another crucial instance of breath comes during the crucifixion. When Jesus cries out in anguish, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then shortly after, it says, Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. Another gospel account in Luke, recounts those events, saying, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then shortly after, Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. The same breath of God that creates life out of the abstract, swirling void in Genesis, also comes alongside us in Jesus to exhale in anguish. The same breath that inhales and creates all of life out of the void also comes alongside us to exhale in anguish. And then even more powerfully, we see that when Jesus' breath runs out on the cross we know from all four Gospels that's actually not the end of the story. After Jesus is raised from the dead on the third day, the final lines in the Gospel of Matthew quote Jesus as saying to the disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then later, Remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So the takeaway from these passages, meditating on breath, is that God's own breath has this creative life-giving power But it also has the capacity to to exhale in anguish alongside us, to communicate that we're not alone, that there is an ideal caregiver out there. And it has the capacity to withstand what looks like defeat, and then to be revived. So focusing on what God's life-giving, creative, sustaining, dying, and then everlasting breath is doing, that's a whole other level of breathing practice. And I would submit that this is the only trustworthy still point by which we can modulate our breath and our mind. Number two, and this is really the last section, just to find some practical takeaways. Number two, a lot of these are obvious, practice listening to the mind and heart and voice of God rather than listening to our own minds and voices and hearts and the voices that consume us from outside and from within one of the most tragic elements of severe anxiety is that it narrows our focus onto our own minds We're only pondering what's going on in our own minds ultimately and that's tragic because it reduces both our capacity to allow God's mind to draw close to us to provide comfort And it reduces our capacity to allow God to reattune us to the realities and needs of others. The minds of others. One of the useful techniques that we use a lot in in DBT, this is a treatment for recurrent suicidality and self-harm primarily, but it also helps with interpersonal relationships and emotion regulation in general. One of the useful techniques that we use a lot is just called comparisons. And connectedness. And this is Hard to do. It's a simple concept. just means to shift your focus from what's going on in your own self-absorbed mind to mindfully practice attending to what's going on for someone else. Or to doing something for someone else. Or to consider how someone else is responding to a challenge like the one we've got. To meditate on connectedness. But again, here there's an existential loophole. Or a limitation, sawing itself off at the the branch, if all we can turn our mindful gaze to for inspiration is our connection to other fallible and limited and vulnerable and dying human beings, as powerful as that might be in certain moments, I would argue there's a limit to how encouraged we can really be by that kind of connectedness. Because as we've seen, there are some anxieties about ultimate threats that we know none of us can outlive or outperform. And similarly, mindfulness practice often encourages us to practice, just observe, non-judgmentally, what our own minds are doing. Just observe your own mind. We we spend a lot of hours in our residential program practicing this, developing this as a skill, and it's extremely useful, otherwise we wouldn't be doing it. But the idea behind this is that um, if we could just gaze at ourselves, Without judgment, if we could separate out our judgments about ourselves from pure observation of reality, the reality of our minds, what we really are, what reality really is, then we'd be freed up from some suffering. And of course, as a matter of actual clinical practice, this is extraordinarily helpful sometimes. And Many of my patients do learn well how to be a better observer of themselves and to be less judgmental about themselves in very helpful ways. It is crucial for all of us to learn to distinguish the thought that I'm unlovable from from the thought I'm having the thought that I'm unlovable. That's a crucial distinction for all of us to be able to make. None of us, I think, perfectly always make that distinction. But if the ultimate still point for our practice of mindful gaze is only further into the hall of mirrors that is my own mind, or the minds and of experiences of others. No wonder our anxiety doesn't go away. C.S. Lewis famously said about looking into his own mind For the first time, I examined myself with a seriously practical purpose, and there I found what appalled me a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. That's anxiety relieving. <laughs> Hmm. Someone agrees.
4: <laughs>
3: I'm almost done. In addition, it's not so easy right now to turn our attention to just ourselves. Or to turn our attention to just not ourselves. Turn our attention outside, beyond ourselves in any kind of pure way. Because we have all of these influences and voices commenting on the pandemic and every other bit of fallenness. Uh, George Floyd, so on and so forth, um, that are currently competing for our attention and drowning each other out. So we can ask ourselves, are we being selective enough about whose voice and story we are listening to? Which mind are we giving the most audience to? Mary and Martha, good reminders here, sitting at the feet of the Savior, (laughs) listening to his voice, letting him walk alongside us sitting at his feet, daily. And if Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, then we can make him the first and the last source that we listen to every day. Unfortunately, there are so many ways to invite God in again, to begin anew, to help us listen to his mind. Lots of ways to do that, just to throw a few out. Um, Spend regular time listening to what Christians believe is his word to us, the Bible. And spend time just talking with him. Just talk with him. How can we do this? How can we pray and read scripture when we're highly afraid? Read scripture. You'll see that you can join the company of those throughout scripture who call out to the Lord in great worry and fear. We just looked at a couple of passages. There's a million. So while meditating on the hopeful verses, the wide frame shifting verses the revelation passage the wipe away every tear while that can be helpful let's not think that we are left to force feed ourselves those scriptures that express hopefulness but feel tone deaf to where we're really at when we're fraught with fear we're despair we're self-hatred let's rediscover the treasure trove of passages in which real people bring their fears directly into conversation with the Lord Job, Elijah, countless scriptural heroes and anti heroes cry out to the Lord with no pretense about the magnitude of the distance they feel from God's presence. And Jesus himself touched this level of hopelessness and anguish in a way that bordered on the darkest of thoughts. In Matthew 26, he said, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. What does that mean? So that's, is, he, is he? What kind of dark thoughts is he having? Probably some of the same that many of my patients have had. By the way, the general prevalence of suicidal ideation, suicidal thoughts, in the general population is vastly higher than what any of us would think. Just as an aside, might have been there in our Lord too. I don't know for a fact. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. What does that mean? we can allow ourselves to come into that kind of mind's presence, honestly acknowledging the depth of our fear and any other emotion that we're stuck with that's fallen. Number three, another third technique or set of techniques. Another obvious thing, really. Um, Immerse yourself in the background sights and sounds and stories of the Christian narrative. God's great rescue mission for us. Immerse yourself in the background sights and stories and images and sounds of God's great rescue mission. Where is this story being told and celebrated? In addition to listening to God's word through scripture and prayer, look in the background. God meets us in the quiet. I have not been as faithful as I'd like to say I've been about this, but during the pandemic, I for a time, I had a practice of doing, doing just silent prayer walks around my, the hospital campus where I work in the mornings. And what I learned in those moments was to talk with God better, more transparently about my anxiety about the day, what I fear I won't be able to do, uh, to ask God to help me imagine what He might be doing instead of to worry about what I may or may not do. And that, helps, that helped me reimagine the ultimate story and widen the frame around the landscape of suffering as I'd start the day. God meets us, of course, in real-life examples. Those who've walked with God and experienced that wider frame and can, can testify to it through their own paths fraught with fear. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I, I heard an incredible reminder talking with a, a dear older friend. Until her recent death, she, she lived just down the street from our family, but she grew up in Germany as The daughter of a Nazi weapons inspector, uh, Yuta Garendis, whose story has been told. Um, She fled the Nazi regime. She later married a Jewish man, with whom she walked alongside the Lord for decades. And we were blessed to get to know them a little bit. They lived very close to TCC. And she said to me at the beginning of the pandemic, with not a flinch anywhere in her body she said, if we once learned to trust that God could be faithful through that ordeal, Nazism, we can remember it and expect to find it again now. So meditating on a lived story like that can be an incredible way to widen the frame. Um, Bonhoeffer, so many examples. Uh, For the sake of time, unless people want to hear it later, because I've already gone on too long, I fear, but Uh, it's a Bonhoeffer poem that was written in prison at uh, uh, at, uh, probably you know it so I'll save it for later if there's time I haven't bored people to tears God meets us in sights and in sounds and so I I I tend to use scriptural adjuncts music, art, books I know this is big at Labrie I have great opportunities to do this here books to transport yourself away from the din of voices of news sources and Self-criticism and worry. Uh, I'll just throw a few of my favorites out. You'll have your own favorites. Um, The band U2 is not cool anymore, but they were cool for a long time. A long time. I mean, they had the longest stretch of being like the world's biggest and best band. (laughs) Coldplay, come on. Like, not even. I mean, (laughs) aspiring to that crown. Uh, This is completely objective and unbiased, of course. But U2, the early U2 was even a little before my time. But possibly my favorite song in the world is a song called Scarlet by U2. And you probably don't know it. Everybody knows the big ones. But this was on October 1981. one. They're most overtly religious album, perhaps until recently. And it was our, uh, the song that we played at our wedding. And it, for me, is such an, it, it never fails to widen the frame. And the entire lyrics of the song are just a single word. Does anybody know it? Rejoice. Just rejoice. And if I, if I could sing like the young, young Bono, I, I would, I would be inspired <laughs> to. But it's, it's heart-wrenching for me. Just <clears throat> rejoice. And it's this mournful, bittersweet, melancholic, aching, crescendoing drums. Uh, I, I really want to like dance it out or act it out or sing it out, but I, we need to play it over the speakers at the end of this, maybe. Thumping bass. Widens the frame. Or try meditating on Danish painter Rembrandt's remarkable work, I'm, Return of the Prodigal Son, I'm sure discussed in these walls depicts God the Father's loving embrace of his wayward son returning home, anxious that he'll find rebuke and rejection. Some of our deepest fears about never finding an ultimate home are captured in that, that painting. And we can touch that while situating it within the wider frame, by meditating on that image, that life-giving Brushstrokes that show that you know we're wayward, anxious little children, hearts longing for this ultimate return, and there it is depicted. And these kind of audio and visual meditations, I think, can switch our minds from despair about the disquiet of our own minds to what God's mind is doing, what God is doing, is doing, has done, will do for us and through us. Almost there. Number four. As the therapist suggests we should do, practice distinguishing what's within your control and what's not. As we do that, we see how small the sliver is of things that are within our control. How microscopic that field of agency that we really have. But also there's these rumors of glory that we're meant to be little Christ. And Ben again talked about this last week. We're meant for more Rumors of a separate world. Rumors of glory. We've fallen. So as you do what the therapists say, practice that distinction. What's within my control right now? What do I have to accept and approach because it's out of my control? That's a useful secular technique. But more importantly, practice distinguishing what is ultimately in God's sovereignty. What is under God's agency. That's the wider frame. If we just are left with the frame of accepting what is and what is not under my control. That's no recipe for hope or anxiety management. Number five, when you get clear about what is within your agency, focus on carrying out what is within your agency, what is within your influence toward other fearful, anxious people that are within your sphere of influence that are given by God to you. To care for. Another way of saying this is that when we're anxious, sometimes the, the best thing we can do is just to get on with the ordinary work of loving our neighbor as ourselves. And we're taught in the scriptures and reminded by the, the words of Jesus that our, our highest calling and command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's no less the command when we're Fearful. And those commandments stand unafflicted by the coronavirus, and I think they're more relevant rather than less. I personally think that's why maybe we see a little deflection in the suicide increase. C.S. Lewis has again this quote, which I couldn't find, but it's something about being, if the atom bomb is about to drop on us, be found engaged in worthwhile things when it comes. Think of what Jesus was doing on the night of the Last Supper. No, knowing that he's going to be betrayed. Right? He chooses to serve. And if there was any fear already mounting up in him, he chooses to serve. He washes the disciples' feet. And then he goes off to pray and immerses himself in the Father's presence. That's real self-care for anxiety. Finally, and this is the final number six, final, final, final. Let our attention come to rest on the mystery of the cross and of the scarred and risen Jesus. And I'm still going to use this, this uh, story, even though it involves Robbie Zacharias. Some of you may have followed uh, the fall of Robbie Zacharias, or at least his public reputation. Uh, but there was this wonderful line in an interview. You can still see it. I, I, don't, I don't know if you can still see it. You can probably still see it on YouTube. In 2019, between, between Tim Tebow and Robbie Zacharias. And this is a story not about Robbie Zacharias, but about what Tim Tebow said. Um, I'm not a sports fan, so like Tim Tebow. He looks like he might be a maybe a football player. <laughs> uh, Tim Tebow was asked by Ravi Zacharias, and if he now knows the truth about Ravi, he was asked, how can Christians best run away from experiences we know we should avoid? Isn't that touching now? But what Tebow said, I think it's a response that stands. He beautifully distinguished that a better question is not what we're running away from what or who we're running toward. And our natural human anxieties are often about what we're running... We we, we manage them by trying to fact-check and recontextualize what we're running away from. But better still, often, to put our gaze and our mind back on who we're running towards We may have a thousand anxieties in an age of ever-present threat we must feel we need to run away from, but when we're running after and kneeling before the feet of the risen, scarred Jesus, then our attitudes, our habits, our propensities of thought all become transformed by that presence, that vision, that personality, that relationship with the perfect love which Christians know that God poured out in Jesus, coming right alongside our vulnerability on the cross for us. And that's a bracing existential shock for anyone who comes to believe that we'd otherwise be paralyzed by fear at this bleakness of what's happening around us. And maybe we can go inside a bit more easily by virtue of the last year. And... On the other side of the cross, is something just very striking to, to notice. I think I mentioned this in some form in every talk that I ever give about mental health, whether it's about suicide or... The risen Jesus remains scarred. And that raises a fascinating question worth closing, closing this on. Why are Jesus' scars seemingly eternal rather than wiped away? I thought every tear was going to be wiped away. But there's all kinds of horror show in Revelation. This is part of why I like horror. There's lots of blood and guts in Revelation. It's not G-rated. The idea is that um, the deepest scars don't necessarily disappear. Not just not in this life, but I wonder even about the next. Scars, I think, remain because Jesus wanted to communicate the depth of the suffering that he went through on a visceral level. He doesn't show up and lecture us from a podium... About how to manage our anxiety. He doesn't lecture us about deep theological truth or he doesn't do a guided exposure exercise with us around our breath. He wants us to know a truth about his scars viscerally. Look at how he presents himself to Thomas. We all know the story. He says, I will not believe unless I put my hands into the nail marks to prove that he really died and rose again. And Jesus doesn't say, just touch the wounds. He invites Thomas to place his hand inside. Put your very being into my being. It's as if Jesus says to Thomas, I know you have scars too. And I want you to see and feel that so do I. Touch my scars. Live within my scars. Because that's how you know my love for you. That's how you widen the frame. So we are to bring our anxieties and all of our other emotional scars right into the presence of this Jesus whose own scars in some way remain but transformed redeemed I'll just I think end by just giving you again sort of the restatement of the four, four big takeaway points that I think just transform how we conceptualize fear just really quickly We have a God, number one, we have a God who looks with ultimate seriousness on our most inescapable fears. Number two, we have a God who loves to encourage and comfort those who are anxious and afraid. Number three, we have a God who knows firsthand what it is like to fear. And number four, we have a God who has conquered the ultimate objects of our fear through love and scars. And that's a good a place. I mean, you might be thinking maybe 30 minutes ago would have been a good enough place. But let's end there. I have not been watching the time, so, oh dear. Wow. Sorry. <laughs> so, what do we do now? Uh, Exposure exercises. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, now we talk per if, per if, if people aren't tired. Do we, we'll take a break, or what do we do?
1: Well, let's just go into to a time of discussion. If people have questions or things they want to raise and ask Brandon. That's great. Um, yeah, I can say. we can give priority to people in the room at first, and then if there's people online that want to raise their hands, we can unmute you and you can ask your question. But uh, it really can go on. Uh, as long as you want it to go on, Brandon, <laughs> you, you need to be able to... I brought my sleeping bag. It. I'm ready to go. Put but if Nobody needs to leave now, it's fine. Nobody will be offended. Yeah, I
3: you. will not be offended. I, you, I've kept you far too long, some of you. Thanks for listening. Nice to see
4: you.
5: Hey.
3: You look familiar, too. Have we met before?
5: I'm everywhere.
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> maybe we haven't. I thought maybe we haven't. Sure I thought maybe we I, we've met here, yeah, per, perhaps so. not. Yeah, I was
5: here before. Um, nice it, to see you again. Nice to see you again, too. Um, uh, when you were talking... Can you tell me your
3: name, too, when we do questions? Yeah, for everybody. Thanks, Liz. Thanks, Liz.
5: Um, when you were talking about anticipatory grief, yeah. um, that really struck a chord with me. Uh, and the reason for that is because I have two friends um, who are who um, came to mind, and they might be an example
4: of people that struggle with this, and it's Frog and Toad.
3: They're my friends, too. (laughs) I was just reading them the other night. Yeah. So i have to ask them. Poor souls. Yeah. They end
4: up in a lot
5: of trouble. Um, So I have a small little passage of a story to read about them. I think it's an example of, of the anticipatory dread. So, um Sarah's familiar with the story, I think. is the one where um, Frog and Toad are going for a swim. Oh. Toad is feeling possibly he knows Modest is hottest, yeah. so he's feeling a little nervous about putting on his bathing suit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. he says he says to Frog, after I put on my bathing suit, you must not look at me <laughs> until I get into the water. <laughs> Why not? asked Frog. Because I look funny in my bathing suit. That is why, said Toad. So he is feeling a lot of, a sense of existential doom. So he gets into the water, and the worst happens. The turtles laugh. The lizards laugh. The snake laughs. What are you laughing at? Um... What are you laughing at, Frog, said Toad. Mm -hmm. I'm laughing at you, Toad, said Frog, because you do look funny in your (laughs) bathing suit. Of course I do, said Toad. (laughs) Then he picked up his clothes and he went home. So, that's
3: what now you have to give us your exegesis well, of, uh, of the passage
5: Toad is considering the fact that maybe the worst thing in the world will happen if he puts his bathing suit on yes, um, yes. And, and he knows people will laugh at him and that would be he would have shame, he would have embarrassment that hasn't happened yet but he anticipates that it will happen It's um, a brilliant example
3: now I know what he was anxious about
5: <laughs> he was so anxious and uh, so it does happen. The worst does happen, mm. and then he gets up and he goes home. Mm. Um, I I think that it's 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 a little it's instructive in that um, I like the idea that when the very worst thing happens, sometimes mm. it isn't as bad even then as what we
4: anticipated.
5: Mm. Um, in thinking about anticipatory grief though, I was wondering if you had any any ideas of how to kind of um, practically furnish the future with some hope and some Mm -hmm. optimism when we, I know I tend to look at it with just this big existential dread that probably Mm -hmm. something bad will happen, maybe something bad has happened in the past and so something bad will probably happen in the future. I, I try to reanimate I'm working on like reanimating or re enchanting the future. Mm. Sometimes I run into some blockades practically when I'm trying to do that and I wonder like don't talk to me, you could just talk to Robin
4: and Toad if you really, <laughs> really want to. Uh. <laughs>
3: I want to come up with something witty about responding within the story, but not really about the okay. story. But I'm not sure I can do it quite on the, the nice dual levels that you just... I, I love your analysis. Ah, hmm. Yeah, it's a deep question.
5: It's difficult. I find it difficult to be an active participant in this thing called life.
4: Because...
5: Yeah. I feel that if it was a show, there's a part in the Brothers Care off where one of the brothers says, if this is the show, then I would like to return my tickets. And um, I feel that way often. And so I am... almost wondering about how to commit to being
3: an active participant in the world and how to feel comfortable yeah. um, doing so. It's such a—I <clears throat> it's, it's a... That is such a multi-layered question. I, I can't possibly do it justice, but happy to talk more afterward. But, boy, um, I'm going to... Rather than trying to come up with something newly clever to say, I'm going to actually... What's coming to mind is to commend something that I, I briefly touched on about taking something like for the people that, for myself, but also for many of the people that I work with clinically, gosh, they describe exactly what you've just described. It's so poignant. That's why I'm, I'm struggling a bit to come up with something. I'm just feeling the gravity of the, the challenge. We do sometimes start with breathing exercises. Um, because it's the f- first thing that we have to do to sort of live into the next moment. We do it unconsciously. Ninety-nine percent of the time, we do it without intention. Um, it can be a symbol for all the other many things that we do unconsciously that that get in our own way, that are harmful to ourselves or others, that keep us stuck. The 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 divots in our mind that we run down, that we ruminate over, that keep us stuck in an air we're framed. Like breathing, those things are often unconscious and yet. Yeah, in, it seem inescapable. Sort of like we can't imagine a world without breathing. We can't imagine a world without the, ang- the anxious ruminations or the despair or whatever it is. Fill in the blanks. The worry about the swimsuit. Um, this is where I, 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 I would recommend, just speaking very practically, what would it be like to actually take the practice of breath and let it ask for God to baptize it ask for God to take that simplest of thing. I think useful to take something that's concrete and physical. Because you know, if the question is organized around what career should I have? Um, who should I have as a partner? Uh, what is the meaning of my life? Too abstract. I think that this is where psych- psychological problems do get in the way of productively answering those questions. So what can be more helpful is sometimes, I think, Liz, just actually do something really concrete. And it might just be baptizing your your breath practice. So you read the passages that I mentioned tonight. Read Genesis 1. Read the exhale on the cross. Read about the other instances of breath. God's breath. what is God breathed in scripture? Um, tying your very existence in this moment back to God's breath. Knowing that everything you do is contingent on God's breath. Um, that kind of meditative practice sometimes can transform just a simple act, which is not so simple, of breathing into something that becomes more conscious, intentional, uh, and it becomes more of a grace to keep breathing. You then, you then, this takes practice, because again, we're thinking not just about like quick fix spiritual solutions, like do this once and then God gives this amazing transcendent epiphany. Now I know that my breath has this rich symbolic meaning. I do this 99% of the time without intention and unconsciously, like I do everything else. It's a practice, and I have worked with some people who build a life practice around doing something like this. And it's amazing to see it become kind of a sacrament. It signifies, but it also brings about. God uses it to bring about the new reality, the new frame. So I'd suggest, don't have your head in the clouds about it. Um, just trying of bring it back to the swimsuit story. I'm not sure how I can uh, do that. Maybe you can probably do it. Breathe, Frog just breathe. <laughs> yeah. Breathe but but bring all the powers of scriptural symbolism and the powerful reminders that we have in the person of Jesus. Bring all that to bear on the simplest most unconscious thing and it can be transformed. And then the big things might follow. You can play with the symbolism of that. You have a richly symbolic mind, I can tell. It's really cool. Hi, Dick.
2: I'd love to hear how you, you've given us a, a great sweep from what, how the secular psychiatrist sees things and then into a Christian view of things, which is a wonderful way, I think, of, of, of seeing how the Christian faith really gives a foundation underneath what you want to achieve. How in the world do you do that in, in McLean's? I mean, you're not employed to be an evangelist. <laughs> <not> too... <laughs> we're
3: we're all employed to yeah. be yeah. an evangelist. Yeah. No, no, yeah. But, you yeah. know, I, no. You're right. Well, of course, I'm, of course, you're right. A higher yeah. employment, but you're lower. Of course, right? Why? In the that would get you into trouble. <laughs> yes.
2: Uh, how, how, yes. Practically speaking, how does this work? Because I mean, a lot of the hopes you give, especially on existential issues, yeah. you only can give if you yeah. if you venture beyond. Yeah. that. The,
3: Absolutely, the, or, or the, or the, the, the Absolutely. pharmacology. Yeah, no, it's. I mean, and this is the sort of curse and blessing of um, the work that I've chosen. Is you know, yeah, had to do it. we am supposed to be a secular priest. Um, there is an underappreciation of spirituality as a general catch-all category. There's some increasing attention to the role of spirituality in psychiatric treatment, psychotherapy, but. It's still kind of the more
2: the, appreciation now than
3: there is more now years ago. exactly yeah. more now, but I find a lot of what gets written is still kind of this like uh, whitewashed. It's sort of like the. Oh, I want to say all the blood and guts of the story is taken out of it. It's sort of it's sort of made to be palatable, universalized spiritual yeah. concepts. It, it, veer, right. it veers quite close. Like, <clears throat> practice gratitude. It's really useful to yeah. practice gratitude. And that gets lumped into um, spiritually informed treatments. Um, how, do you, how can you be grateful to whom? Mm-hmm. To, to what? <laughs> to the universe? Yeah. How does that work? Uh, Oh, but there's lots of manuals on how to practice gratitude to the universe. But it feels kind of empty. So the simple answer, I mean, the complex answer is there are lots of examples I could give, but just the simple answer would be on a good day um, when God has my heart in the right place. um, It's about, I think, just looking and listening intently for those rumors of glory because the vast majority of my patients uh, do not identify as religious, let alone as Christians. So, um, but all truth is God's truth. All beauty is God's beauty. All goodness is God's goodness. And there's plenty of beauty and goodness and truth in what we end up talking about. And it often, I think this is why I like horror too. I work with suicidal and self-harming people. That's the specialty I've somehow, I didn't plan on this, somehow found my way into that. But I think one thing I like about it is it's the shadow side of the longing for goodness, the destruction of one's own life, right? Uh, it's the, it's about as dark as it can get. Um, but in the darkness, again, this is your lecture last week, Ben, in the darkness of the fall, you go into the the darkest places and you, and you see there still, there's always still a longing for the light. Um, can't have the dark without the light. I'm going to sound like the matrix here or something, but this is, I'm inculcated by the spiritual practices of McLean <laughs> hospital. But I think it's listening like Jesus listened mm-hmm. to people. And I don't do that close to the way he did it. But mm-hmm. on a good day, when I feel like I do hear or see something, sometimes the conversation just opens up mm-hmm. and it's God walking through the room. And I almost always have a clear sense that it it was given to us. It was a grace, not my words. It was not my cleverness. On a bad day, I'm full of my own cleverness, and therapists love to be clever and enjoy their own cleverness and turn a phrase in a clever way or um, make a really skilled interpretation about the tie it all together with a you know pretty bow. That's not really what this work is like. That's the that's the movie therapist. But it's a lot of just uh, sitting with people kind of in the darkness, listening for the, the echoes, the underside of, of the glory that we're called to, and then trying to amplify the attention to that mm-hmm. together when it's there. That's, that's one partial answer. Mm-hmm. I, there are some stories I could tell you, though, of some really interesting things that God has done with a secular therapy. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll save that for another time.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Partial answer. There is more attention at McLean, though, to, um, again, spirituality. There's somebody there who runs a spirituality and mental health program who's an Orthodox Jew, who's a wonderful man, uh, has done research on this. Um, I could talk a lot about what the research indicates. The research, when you actually look at it, clearly indicates spirituality is underappreciated and undervalued, and that when (coughs) treatments take into account spirituality, (coughs) spiritual concerns, broadly speaking, they go better. That We, we know that empirically. Mm-hmm. But we're a long way from that to the story of Christianity mm-hmm. yeah. and how we all need that. Yeah. And you're right. I have to operate a little bit in, uh,
2: in some shadow. I've often thought about anxiety coming in, in the world, not so much in people coming to your uh, office as much as in the culture. I think we get a lot of anxiety because we've invested so much in false hopes. Insecure hopes uh, that aren't reliable, and we ought to be anxious about them. Yeah. And, and, and uh, yeah. but you're you're talking about people who yeah. who've had a lot of those false hopes stripped away already. Yeah.
3: But, yeah, that's right. Uh, reach, that's you know, right.
2: And, and, and so, uh, you're, that's
3: right. And sometimes you see the heart hardening because of that, mm-hmm. and you really feel the despair, and you really feel the hopelessness and the helplessness, and you, on a good day, you know, take it into the self. It's hard to know how to metabolize it.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And you think, gosh, I uh, need more of Jesus here because I can't do it. Uh, on other days, there's this... Because of just what you said, that someone has come to a place where they've been so weakened, they've lost so many people. or The horror of the trauma, I could tell you stories, the trauma that I've heard about, um, and, and yet there's, there's, there's a looking up. There's an awareness of the fall in oneself, in the in the in the caregivers in that person's life, there's a holy awareness of the fall. And again, is Ben's lecture? You know, it points points to the source. Sometimes that's a that's a hopeful.
6: Okay, so,
3: yeah. Could ramble on, but it's late. Yeah.
6: So uh, my name is Gustavo.
3: Gustavo, Gustavo. Um, yes, Gustavo. Thanks for um, listening.
6: What you said about the how Jesus presented himself to Thomas really um, you know got me thinking because. I think a lot, I mean, I don't know, I can't say for sure, but there's a lot of, um, I think, despair because there's things that can't be healed, right? And I think a lot of times people realize internally that that won't happen, right? That healing isn't going to happen. Yes. That, sometimes in some Christian circles that may seem... Like a lack of faith or skepticism or or a lack of intimacy with God. Yes,
3: if you had enough faith, you'd you'd, you'd expect this to be healed. It's not being healed because you don't have enough faith, right?
6: Right. Right. And so I think that speaks profoundly because it's almost in a sense as if, you know, though there may be no healing and though that doesn't, you know, give us a direct answer as to why this happened in the first place, Chris himself is kind of, you know, he's, taking it onto themselves. So the wound is part of who I am now. Yes, I'm never going to be back to a place where I, you know, I am the verb of God, the Father, and I haven't been a human. I'm never going to be the verb that hasn't been crucified. I will always be now crucified and resurrected. Yes, yes. Um, and so I think if we think about that in our own terms, too, that can kind of help us, as Christians, of course, you know, process a little bit of, you know, why did this happen? You know, this is never going to go away. Yes. Kind of and then if we just keep thinking, you know, you're going to forget it, you're going to overcome it, that may never, you know, answer the thing. Answer, you know,
3: that may not be useful. You should give the next talk up here, I think. No, yeah, it's right on. I mean, and that is why, that's why I sort of pepper that in in some way to any time I talk to any audience about mental health and faith. It's, it's a transcendent image. The risen, scarred Jesus, presenting himself, to, to those who doubt. It's transcendent. There's nothing else like it. Um, it's exactly as you say. It's the hope for the unhealable wound in this life. And uh, I, I, if, if I had to sort of guess, I still think that, you know, we're not going to be woundless in heaven. It's that they'll be transformed into monuments of God's grace. There'll still be some... I, this is just pure, pure speculation, but... There'll still be some, well, I can't really speculate, but it, it, some memory of what God has done. Mm-hmm. There'll be some way to remember it. Not to feel it, but some memory of what God has done with our scars that becomes a cause for eternal praise. Mm-hmm. And we, our job is to grasp that at some level in this life. And some of my, my patients tend to cut themselves and self-harm in other ways, and a number of them who've stopped uh, one one young woman with who cuts all, all up and down her arms. Uh, I think I may have mentioned her actually last time I was here, because just that morning before I came to Labrie last time, she said this amazing thing, and I won't be able to remember it exactly, but it was it was um, reflecting that she'd just gone back to Mass. She grew up Catholic. She'd gone back to Mass for the first time in a long time, and she said something like, um, "I now believe that uh, my scars will never go away, but they will be transformed into like monuments of grace." That's where I got that "monuments of grace" line from her. I just thought, "Wow, what a what a what a poet, what a visionary!" Uh, and that was from her own experience. You know, that level of self hatred, that level of um, depending on physical harm to regulate feelings, because it does. We don't like to think about it, but there have been some studies showing how that does biologically regulate feelings. We know something about the mechanism of that. Utterly dependent on that. Now going back to Mass and this tantalizing thought, yeah, Jesus has scars too. That was transformative for her in just the way that you described. And we all have scars. The people who walk around with them on their arms... You know, look at the people who sort of bag the groceries, you know, sort of pay attention to this. I see it more often than I look for it, so I see it. But um people who people who are scarred in those visible concrete ways often often know this. And they could teach us a thing or two. How to walk with scars. Yes. I
1: said, of course I was struck by the um the term you kept using the existential loopholes, and like in a sort of secular uh, psychotherapy, you have something that um, sort of pragmatically works, but doesn't have a foundation underneath it somehow. Like it's it's, it's helpful in some contexts, but there's mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a gaping hole. And mm-hmm. the thing that struck mm-hmm. me the most was the, the, the comment about you know identifying what things are within your control, what things are out of your control, and even just that can be. A useful exercise, yeah. um, which is really striking to me, because, because to me, it seems like that would do nothing to, from a, from a Christian perspective, like, what, what, what's that going to do for me, if, unless I have some theology that says that someone is in control, <laughs> and that person actually is, right. you know, has my interest in mind. Right. Um, right. So it, I'm, what I'm curious about yes. is what... Yes. Um, People ever talk about? Oh, why does this work? Like, <laughs> it, it seems to me that so so much of the yeah. things that do yeah, it's work, it's pointing to yep. the foundation that's not there. there so it's, it's like, you know, why is it that gratitude actually makes yeah. you well, physically, physiologically healthier, and all the all these different things? It's yep. pragmatic, yep. so we should do it. Yep. But yep. Let's look, look at the So if you
3: yeah. truth. So if you look at, if you look at Tyler VanderWheel's research, he's at the Harvard, um, Harvard Medical School Program for Human Flourishing. He's been in the news a lot lately. If you look at Tyler VanderWheel's research, he did Grand Rounds at McLean recently. He's, uh, we're actually doing a study on one of our programs on the therapy that's designed to improve <coughs> flourishing. So you have to use these secular terms. You can't say to improve, you know, uh, Christian virtue. Um, sanctification. This <laughs> is sanctification <laughs> therapy. Right, um, yeah, um, but his research—he's um, uh, he's a Christian. His research operates in the world of secular terminology and positive psychology, and look, what they look at is, in particular, gratitude, humility, and uh, what's the other one? Gratitude, humility, and forgiveness. Yeah. Can these be secular virtues? Yeah. Can they even be such a thing? Not on a Christian understanding because who or what are you being grateful to and for
4: yeah.
3: uh, what is forgive what is the meaning of forgiveness outside of a Christian context what we can say about it is that it has clear empirical psychological benefits yes. that's demonstrated yes. to be more forgiving seems to actually lessen depression seems mm-hmm. to maybe lessen anxiety it's a pragmatic argument mm-hmm. and you can sort of smuggle these things in just on on those terms mm-hmm. it's just good for people we know that mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where sometimes going back to Dick's question that's where sometimes the magic can really happen in a therapy mm-hmm. session you're working on forgiveness and you're working with you know and, and I don't really kind of advertise these things to people as I got the ticket we're going to work on, you know got, here's all the answers let's work on gratitude today this is going to solve it. you know you, you sell it that way so you know let's think about you know the concept of forgiveness gosh what would it be like to, I could never forgive that person tell me why why is that unforgivable? Why is that, but gosh, has anybody ever seen you as unforgivable or have you ever been forgiven? Mm-hmm. What's that like? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you know it can't be the case? Oh, I can't be forgiven for what I've done. Mm-hmm. Oh, how do you know that? Mm-hmm. You get into the psychology yeah. of it and then you get, very quickly, you get past some simple prescription for yeah. practice forgiveness. Yeah. Uh, and you get into these deeper conversations with people that can yeah. almost be apologetic in yeah. their, in the way you ask the questions. Yeah. Ask the certain questions, um, so, and, and I find that's true with colleagues too, because you have colleagues that are practicing these therapies and think that they're amazing, and most of those colleagues, and they are amazing. They're amazing helps to people. I don't mean to minim- minimize that at all, but some of my favorite, most skillful therapist colleagues at McLean that have, you know, literally really helped save lives, uh, are, um, tend to orient towards uh, Buddhism, and this philosophy of you know if we can just accept. What's out of our control, mm-hmm. and for them, I frankly can't understand it. Mm-hmm. And there's a sort of shallowness to it—not to them as people, but there's a shallowness to the to the prescription mm-hmm. that's just kind of naked to me. It's mm-hmm. like the emperor has no clothes. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people, a lot of people swear by it. Mm-hmm. And uh, these are these are the strategies. And if you can just do, if you can just have a better daily practice mm-hmm. of acceptance that'll do it that means, who needs who needs sanctification yeah. or redemption that to or, me
1: flies in I think the reason why that leaves so much to be desired to me to me anyway not being in your shoes at all but it's just it's because of it, it, on some level it, t- it, it tends to trivialize the fall it's, it's we have exactly. t- to accept things that have happened and things that are exactly. it's just a fact I am anxious and, and, and to validate that mm-hmm. that is happening but then to accept it as in this is how it should be, or, or, this, or it shouldn't be any different, or it this idea that oh, like the ability to say no to something—it could have been different. Like it, it feels
3: like it could it, have been different. Have. We feel like it yeah, should yes. have been different. And
1: that's very human uh, response. To, and,
3: and that's the thing that that sort of some schools of Buddhist therapy practice would say. That's the thing you have to get away right, from. Exactly.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah.
3: That's yeah. the pro- That's the whole problem. Yeah. You're you're attached, mm-hmm. and if you could practice non-attachment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, Attachment. non-attachment. Get away from your. Get away from your demand for the world to be different. That's actually how I'm a big yeah. fan of DBT. Again, I've used it. It's yeah. I use it all the time. It's, it's life-saving for people. It's an, and actually the developer of that treatment is Catholic. Yeah. Um, Marshall Linehan um, yeah. wrote an autobiography about how she developed the treatment a couple of years ago, and it yeah. saved countless people's lives. That treatment. Yeah. And it's an interesting blend. If you're ever going to sort of look at a, a, a psychotherapy from Christian principles, it's a really interesting blend of Eastern and and Western thought. But um,
1: remind me what it stands for again. Uh,
3: dialectical behavior therapy, behavioral therapy, DBT, yeah, Marshall Linehan. Um, but anyway, yeah, uh, the shallowness of the secular approaches to these concepts I, I, is kind of obvious to me. And I think the interesting things in therapy happen when people, people come up against those limits mm-hmm. and start to feel almost more hopeless in a way. You can see the limitations clearly. What hope is there? And I can't in that moment just come out and say, yeah, this is the Bible. but, but by, asking, by referring them to Brie, by asking searching questions the same way you guys do here. Um.
0: I'm interested in your comment about between person
4: differences.
0: Yeah.
3: We're not all the same.
0: (laughs) We're not all the same. But how, as laymen, to walk with anxious people and not feel, not minimize or overemphasize anxiety, um, get wrapped up into the anxious narrative and like, to comfort mm-hmm. or to just like downplay it and how to do that in a loving honest way as as friends
3: hmm. I'm resisting the, the answer of um, well there's no simple answer to it right yes. because you're trying to do it not just on a therapist level right Right, it's easier to answer the question about in in a way about how do you do this not acting as a Christian? How do you do this? What what are the therapeutic techniques for sitting with somebody who has uncurable, unescapable anxiety? I mean, there are some sort of tactics for that. um, Some of which I kind of gestured at in the talk. A bit of the answer that I gave to Liz, in a way, maybe, sort of, you know, finding a, a scriptural still point, um, helping a person look to a scriptural still point outside of themselves and beyond what you have to offer, uh, calling attention to the third, uh, The third in the room, because we believe there is a third in the room. Third in the room is like a therapy, therapy kind of phrase, but. I always talk about the third in the room, is whatever the third party is that's in the mind of the of the patient, or the you know, the the system in which the treatment is happening, or the authority to which the therapist is responsible. These are the thirds in the room. The real third in the room, of course, is our Lord Jesus. And if we believe that, where is the still point in His life, in His suffering, in His scars that you could call attention to gently? Um, now, there is, I think, one, and the one that I talked about, the moment of anguish in the garden, I think that, that just like caregivers do for, for, for small children, it's first a, just a coming alongside, right, and, and then not trying to mitigate it at all, right, I think you, you, your instinct is, is correct, that you don't, you don't come in and first try to massage or soothe the anxiety, you know, That's not the first response, that, you know, the first thing to do is sort of, you, to sort of help someone open up a sense that this person is really listening, and they're, they're making an effort to try to get it, and get how bad this really is for me. And if and I've done this, I've fallen into this many, many times. Uh, just the other day I did. You know, you come in and you prematurely suggest one of these tactics. Yeah, but yeah, I know that we've talked about that a lot, but can we try that fact-checking again? This is a little too much for me right now. Just, <laughs> we, we did this last week for two sessions. Can we... You know, out of my own frustration or impatience, you know, I'll prematurely suggest something that is uh, much more practical than the real problem is, you know, could possibly be dealt with. So I think it's first just kind of a backing off, solving the problem, to just sitting with the problem, alongside the way Jesus comes to us with the scars. I think that's often the first step, and then there's a lot of good research indicating that just that kind of empathic listening without trying to change anything that in and of itself can be interpersonally relationally regulatory not always sometimes it makes it worse the experience of someone's now listening to me and sometimes it actually upregulates the anxiety so to go further with kind of what you can do in those moments it would be more like a talk on like how to be a therapist but there are some tactics we can talk more about but um I don't know if I'm touching the core of the question at all. Yeah, there's more to it, I sense, but...
0: Um, I have to just follow. Yeah, yeah. Um, we often, up, even as a team, of what you do with hard things that you hear. Yeah. Um, yeah.
2: How,
0: yes. what is your personal practice of giving us to the Lord? How you deal with the weight of yes. extreme brokenness mm-hmm. in
4: yeah. the world, yeah. and yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, not taking it home with you. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, of course it does go home, yes. right? Mm-hmm. It's uh, having a long drive from the hospital back home helps to play. Not always the the Scarlet Song, but you know, to, to, <laughs> to sort of play, you know, having some sort of transition, transitioning sort of. Practice is helpful, just practically speaking. But I would go back to one of the last sort of tactics I mentioned about practice, distinguishing yeah. what is. Rather than saying what is within your control, throw that out. Better to say what is with what is what has God given me under my sphere of influence. Mm-hmm. What is not within my sphere of influence, mm-hmm. and what is under the sovereignty, sovereign agency, and love of God. Yeah. And there's a lot that's in that third category that's not in, that's not under our care or influence. That helps me work with highly, highly suicidal people, and I've lost uh, a number of people to suicide that I've worked with. It's a grace. It's, it's, it's only because I know this Jesus, who's the Lord over who lives and dies, and when we all live and die, and how we all live and die. It's only That's the only way that I feel I can ever do this. It's all Him. Uh, and I look at my colleagues and I wonder, I think they sort of end up just numbing themselves to the tragedy of a lost life mm-hmm. sometimes. You just get, you know, you're, when you're crunt in the trenches, you just, you know, in the war zone, you just get desensitized to it. It's not healthy for us. Sometimes it's survival, but how do you maintain the sensitivity, the brokenness, the be in touch with it, the tragedy of the the fall and at the same time know that it's not your sovereign agency that is responsible for that, yeah. for the ultimate outcome. Whether my patient's live or die, is, I don't believe that's up to me. Yeah. Many of my colleagues struggle when they lose a patient.
4: Yeah. And
3: and there's a healthy self-examination process around what could I have done differently? Is there anything I can learn from this? And I've wrestled with that many times too, and I hope I always do. You, you go through the healthy self-examination and then you put it on the altar to God and you, and you give it back and you know that okay, maybe I have to accept that I didn't do everything I could have done but you're sovereign you have the widest frame you're the therapist of us all uh, That's uh, that's the move I try to make You guys are strong, man. This we're going on. I, I love it. I, but I, 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 my heart goes out to all of you. You're welcome to take a break, but I'm honored by your attention. Hopefully, God is honored by your attention. Mm-hmm. This is about God. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. All right. Oh, okay. um, Marty, right?
7: Marty. Uh, yeah. Um. Quite a few years ago, I participated in one
3: of John Kevinson's stress reduction classes. Yeah, yeah. Thing the of the original was guru for a good.
7: lot of this. He yeah. He wasn't the teacher at that point, but mm-hmm. but I yep. and then I didn't you know I participated and did the mindfulness and the breathing and all the different exercises and then later I didn't have time then to sort of do the kind of research I wanted to on where is there overlap with the Christian faith and where isn't there mm-hmm. so later I read some of his books mm-hmm. and then did a did a lecture on. You know, what we can look
3: what, where there's oh. a and where there isn't. Like, oh, is it in the archives? I
7: got to hear oh, it. Oh, it's here, yeah. I, <laughs> I'd love to have hear it. Versions of it. I can send it to you. Yeah, please. No,
3: that would be great, seriously. Yeah,
4: I'll
7: get your email for that. Yeah, that's great. But um, but um, there were some things that were, where I just found very helpful, and uh, you know, again, with a Christian perspective. And Actually, the, the teachers were always telling me, you think too much. Because of course, that's the Buddhist view, right? Um, right. Get away. Animal, yeah. You
3: observe marvelous. your thoughts. Observe, Don't feel the thoughts. Observe. Right, right, right. Yeah.
7: Right. you know, My Christian analysis of things. I actually gave them a paper, and they, and but their response was, well, actually, Buddhism and Christianity really are the same. It was actually, not in the not in the last analysis. But one of the things that I found really, yeah. a, really a really helpful overlap was the part of the mindfulness idea of, and, and I think this is part of the bridge emphasis on the breath, is the moment by moment um, um, really really living in the moment and that yes. um, and that kind of Jesus' teaching against anxiety, you know, don't be anxious for tomorrow. Yes. Um, yes. you know there's enough and then it's in terms of the fault. There's enough evil today. Well, yes. <laughs> it's, yes. so practical.
3: Absolutely. But,
7: but um, there's something and I think the what struck me anyway something about the, about the breath is that it, it, it there's no way to store up breaths you can only take a breath one at a time which brings you to now to this moment and and I was very struck at the same time reading what Schaefer um, Schaefer talks in his book True Spirituality about what he what he um, describes as the as the core of true spirituality is he calls it a kind of Christian existentialism in the sense that it's moment by moment appropriating mm. the finished work of Christ mm. for me now. Oof. And I found that incredibly helpful. That's when, rich. When I love I'm, it. Um, I
4: have heard and that And I've before.
7: been I'm reading Hebrews and just thinking about what, it, you know, the blood of sheep and goats could never clear the conscience, mm. but Jesus' blood oh. can clear the conscience. So moment by moment, moment appropriating. by moment appropriating the finished work of Christ. So mm. in... As, every moment as, as I'm aware of, mm. oh, why did I say that I might put my foot in it again I, you know mm-hmm. I've I heard mm-hmm. someone or whatever in that moment saying mm-hmm. Lord to bring you to the cross mm. thank you Jesus you covered it you paid mm-hmm. for it it's mm-hmm. done I'm mm-hmm. I, now I may have to also write a letter to that or I may have to mm-hmm. that may also lead me to have to apologize or, or
3: and I can be action. freed up to do that but because I'm, of what, I, what I know I about am, the cross I
7: am accepted I am yeah. I am Forgiven, I am no. received in this. Um, mm-hmm. I just found putting together some of the the mindfulness stuff on the, with shape, with Shaper's insight on the you know that it's this it's moment by moment appropriating Jesus' death for
4: me now in this moment.
3: That's really rich. Yeah, that actually that would that would have summarized the talk. Probably could have been twenty minutes shorter. Oh, no. <laughs> that that summer, No, that really captures it. I think that's great. And I think uh, just about um, Luke. Uh, of course, famous passage in Luke 12 about, you know, not storing up in your barns, yes, exactly. you know, uh, do not Luke 12, 22, he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear for life is more than food, mm-hmm. body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. This is, we named my daughter Lily because of this passage mm-hmm. you know, and, um, consider the lilies mm-hmm. and can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your span of life? And then at the end of the passage the instruction, do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, give you the completed work of Christ. Yeah. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven, for there where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's another way of saying it. Yeah, isn't no, it?